I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Even for my firing, this paper was just a pretext, in my opinion. It wasn't really the reason they fired mm. me. I think at this point, after reading the paper and stuff, a lot of people have come to that conclusion. The root of it is like racism and sexism. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson. Thank you for tuning in as ever. We have a great show for you today and we're going to get right into it because we have a fabulous guest on the show. Timnit Gebru is with us and if you've been following the tech news these last few months, you probably know who she is. Timnit is one of the very few black women in the upper echelons of computer science and AI worlds, and until December was one of the co-heads of Google's ethical AI research team. And um, some of you may know the story, if you don't, as she was preparing to publish a paper on some of the pitfalls and dangers of large language models, which is a technology very important to Google's core business, she says, she was fired. Google claimed she resigned. Either way, it was a bitter, very abrupt parting. And after that, her co-director, Meg Mitchell, was fired last month over claims that she removed some confidential files from company property. Dr. Mitchell was also a vociferous defender of Gebru and also uh, a critic of Google and its actions. The point is, The leaders of Google's ethical AI team both departed in very bitter circumstances. Jeff Dean, the executive overseeing this division, has since apologized for how it was handled. Google announced a reorganization of the unit, a racial equality review, and new policies that tie manager and executive pay to diversity and inclusion goals. So that is all the backdrop. And it's just been a really eye-opening look at what happens and what is happening inside Google, which of course is perhaps the world's most important and powerful developer of AI. And the way this has all played out has really just raised questions about how this stuff is being created. The inputs that are being put into these algorithms, who's designing them, and the implications, especially as algorithms and you know AI, you know, the blanket term, really bleed into every corner of life from the justice system with sentencing algorithms 
to the voice assistant you may have sitting on your kitchen counter to the autocomplete on your emails and searches, etc. So it is worth a listen just to hear Gebru's story, how this all went down, you know, from her perspective, and really just what it all means as, again, we get into this, we move into this era where AI is the new electricity. And, you know, who's turning on those lights and who's designing the lights and sending the currents to certain places and not others, etc. It's, you know, it's an important issue. So I'm going to stop talking and hand you over now to Dr. Timnit Gebru, Google's former co-head of ethical AI research. Enjoy. So yeah, first of all, thank you for taking the time. I know this has been a wild, crazy, uh, difficult few months for you. Just I follow you on Twitter, so I see the kind of all the back and forth and everything that's been happening and directed toward you. But um, before we get into kind of what happened in December and everything that's happened since, I was wondering if you could just give me a sense of kind of what were you doing before Google? Like, how did you arrive at Google and what did you arrive to do? Initially, I was gonna, I was thinking about, they wanted to create the first AI center in Africa, in Ghana. And so I wanted to help with that. But then like in, in my offer negotiation process, there was like, a lot of red flags. So in that middle of that, um, Meg Mitchell asked me if I could, if I wanted to co-lead the ethical AI team with her. Mm. And then that's when I said, okay. And I, I decided to join. Were you in academia before that? So my very short, like long, um, career trajectory (laughs) is I initially got a degree at Stanford in in electrical engineering, and I was focused on hardware and analog circuit design, which is very different from like what I later was doing. But I kind of put ideas from that in my latest research. Once I did that, after undergrad, I went to Apple to work full-time for two years. And then I went back to get my master's in the same kind of area. And then I worked at Apple part-time while doing that. And then I kind of continued on to my PhD and um, I kind of left my PhD because I was too isolated. Then I did a startup. Mm. <laughs> then I went back to my PhD. And at that time is when I did the switch to machine learning, computer vision, etc. So then while I was, I did that for my PhD and then towards the end of my PhD is when I started working in this current space that I'm working on, which is more like um, societal impacts of AI, ethical AI, etc. Uh, so after my PhD, I did a one-year postdoc at Microsoft Research, just one year from 2017 to 2018. And then I joined Google. I went into Google to do research. So I went to Google Research and to do research specifically in the, you know, mitigating the um, negative society- impacts of AI. And just doing some reading before we got on, you had started an organization called Black and AI. Is that correct? Yeah, I started an organization called Black and AI with um, Radita Bebe, who um, is um, a professor at Berkeley, and she's changing the landscape a lot. Like uh, Berkeley now has a record uh, number of Black students that they accepted to the PhD program. And there was other founding members like um, Devin Guillory, who's also a PhD student at, at Berkeley, and Sammy Cuejo, who's a professor at University of Illinois. And so we started this organization 
it's been like almost it's basically been five years now and <laughs> it's grown so it started um you know i initially my on my own had a, a small mailing list of black people that i would just see <laughs> around and i just emailed them and then right. at some point we started having lunch and stuff and then at some point we we decided to make it into a larger uh, mailing list and um create a google group and a facebook group so that's what we did and so we initially started with a workshop at NIRIPS, which was um like the largest conference that we knew of and the reason we chose it was because it seemed like it had a lot of overlapping communities like whether it's it's machine learning but it also had like other other groups you know other communities that go there so the very first thing we wanted to do was we wanted to create a workshop be just because we want to have people gather people there we wanted to just have numbers, right? We wanted to have people um, in the community and we wanted to have an online community too, just so we know how many people there are, right? Like who who in the community exists. And then after that, you know, it just grew from there. Like for a while, it was, our focus was mostly the workshop and just getting people to the workshop mm. was a huge deal because there were like many, many obstacles just to do that. And then a lot of people left the field or wouldn't go to the field because they wouldn't, you know, have the um, connections that other people do and they find when they go to these kinds of conferences or they felt isolated, et cetera. So it was important for us to build that community. Then once we started built, once we built that community, we started expanding to other things. So now we have an academic positions program that Reddit runs, which has been doing an amazing job of, mm. I'm not really involved. I just kind of see what happens of like helping people through, you know, applying applications to grad school, staying in grad school and postgraduate studies. Even this year, we started, you know, the industry research scientist positions or postdoc positions and mm. other positions. And and this last year, our workshop was virtual. And so we started having a presence in many other comp um, conferences too, not the large workshop, but smaller meetups. And so now we are expanding our initiatives to also work on like a, an entrepreneurship program uh, in addition right. to the academic positions program we're working on a research institute that we want to start so like it's become like a much bigger thing now than we originally anticipated and what is it to be black in ai in the field of ai in other words you know like i presume i don't know if you know everybody because there's so few of you but what do those numbers look like and why why is that important to kind of change that or to kind of create a community around um, those that are in the field? Um, because, you know, like, for instance, the CCRA in the U.S., I mean, so when I go when I go to these conferences, they're international conferences. So there's people from all over the world. And if you look at the all over the world, black people are about like 20 percent of the world's population. Mm -hmm. Right. In the U.S. only, they're like 14 percent of the of the U.S. population. So even if you just look at it only in the U.S. or internationally, it's a pretty sizable number. And internationally, like black people outnumber white people. But when you go to these conferences, I would count like out of 5,000 people or 6,000 people, I would just count like four or five black people there. That's how low it was. And so people talk about the lack of diversity in tech, but then the lack of diversity in this space was a lot more even than the lack of mm. diversity. And so um, that's why we just said AI. We wanted to make it broad enough that it encompassed, you know, a lot of people and that we were flexible, but we didn't want to make it so broad that 
we couldn't measure progress, right? Black in science or black, you know, it was, it would be hard to measure progress. Yeah. And, and there are already other organizations like the NSBE that, you know, work on like the undergraduate level and even um, have done a lot of work in that area. So that's why we started from the conference because the isolation that you feel when you go there is really high and it has a lot of impacts. I mean, people think it's just an, it's just an event, but like a lot, I've seen with my own eyes, a lot of things, big things happening at these conferences, because that's where people have conversations. And so we wanted to provide visibility for black people in the field and just community. And so that people stay, they don't, you know, just kind of get isolated or they don't have all these barriers that they have to face. And when you look at just the numbers for computing in general, and, and, and it's not even just AI in the U.S., I believe the numbers are that out of 2,000 people who get PhDs every year, only 20 are Black, and only four are Black women every year nationally. And my alma mater, Stanford, PhD, has only graduated one Black person ever with a PhD in computer science. What? That can't be true. It's true. I thought it was zero and they found one. So I got my PhD in electrical engineering and I, I had my advisor in computer science, but they have only graduated one person, black person ever with a PhD in computer science at Stanford. And they talk all so much about diversity and human center, whatever, but like, that's kind of what it is. That's, that's the reality of it. And it's not that hard to change things. It's it's just, it requires will and people don't have the will. People don't want to put the work in. People don't want to take the risks. You see what happened to me at Google. I changed things. It wasn't hard to do it. it the, what, what was hard was other people around me. It wasn't hard to find good people. It wasn't hard to create a good, it just, it was just, it took, it took work because the existing barriers that they placed and the um, resistance to change from other people was so high. That was what the problem was. It wasn't that the people weren't there or anything. It just wasn't. Right. So there are so many different issues that we have, and we wanted to create an organization that would work to address some of these issues for people. So you started at Google in 2018. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And what was the mandate, or you know, what, where, where in the Google machine were you employed, and what were you? employed to do? I went to work at Google Research. And then there was um, a division of Google Research called Brain. But I mean, I don't think I don't know if that is that important. But like the thing that I knew was that Sammy was very Sammy Benjo. He is very much concerned about open research and like bottoms up research. So he wants to have make sure that industry labs still have a model of research where researchers come in and have their own research agenda and they can publish and it's open. And it's hard to convince companies to do that because a lot of times they think either either they want to mandate a top-down kind of research direction or they want they don't understand why long-term research, you know, because they, they can't make money from it right now. But his point is you'll make money from it, you know, like investing in long-term research will make money from it and you have to contribute to that general academic, you know, discourse. So that's what I went to do. And um, I wanted to do that in the space of ethical AI. And so in our team, we didn't only work on long-term research, but we also worked closely with depending with uh, product teams who might have questions about certain procedures that they're following or certain um, things that they're doing. So there was kind of a combination, but there was not like a rigid structure of having to follow one or the other. 
And how many people were you in this team? Well, so when I joined, uh, Meg Mitchell had started the team and she had two people under her. And then I joined and then two more people joined. By the time I left, we had like 12 people, core people in the team. Okay. Um, and by the time I left, we had also made it a very interdisciplinary team. We had three social scientists in our team hired as research scientists. And we had to change the hiring process to do that because that there was an auto-populated thing that said that you had to, you know, have a, a CS PhD degree. So so that was kind of what I went to do. And there was no secret about who I was and what I stood yeah. for. And um, and they even celebrated, you know, when we got the 2020 EFF award with Joy and Deb, or I get like a wired list or whatever list I'm on for Black and AI. What was the EFF award? The Electronic Frontiers Foundation. It was yeah. really sweet, actually. Awarded Joy Buamini the 2020 Pioneer Award. She's been on this podcast. Yeah, so she won the Pioneer Award, and she asked them if she could share it with me and Deborah Raji. So then they gave it to three of us and said for work on gender shades. So they knew, you know, people at Google knew. In fact, Jeff Dean one time, you know, tweeted about gender shades and stuff. And he was like, my Google AI colleague, you know, to meet. And Joy wanted to make sure that he knew that gender shades was not Google's work, right? It was, so mm. that's what happens many times. Like when you're at an institution, they want to sort of celebrate you and their work and they sort of want to take yeah. credit for your work, right? <laughs> but then they want, like the moment they want to get rid of you, they just sort of like get rid of you like that. So. And what was the, what was the gender shades work? I think I know what you're talking about, but just in case listeners don't. Um, the gender shades work was based on, so Joy had started investigating the manner in which automated facial analysis tools work uh, on people of different skin tones. So she was doing some project and found that open source face detection um, model couldn't detect her face. And then mm. it would detect other people's faces, like her roommate's faces. And then she, she would only get it to detect her face if she was putting on a mask. Right. A white, a white mask, right. A white mask. So then when she started doing a master's in computer science at the Media Lab, she was looking for people to collaborate with her. And I, I somehow got introduced, like my friend um, Jess, who was, um, they were both um, Rhodes Scholars saw this email and she forwarded it to me because she knew I was interested in that kind of stuff. And I responded to Joy saying, you know, I like her work and I'd be inter I'm interested in, in what she's doing. And then we, that's how we started collaborating. So this was her master's thesis and I was basically like her advisor on her master's thesis. So then I didn't even think we could really publish it besides beyond her thesis. But, you know, people don't really cite master's theses or PhD theses, right? They cite peer-reviewed papers usually. So that October, I found out like that, you know, the fact conference was going to start. So people were start trying to start this conference. And so then it was specifically conference to allow publishing of those kinds of works. And so then I, I told her, hey, we might be able to take a subset of your theses and publish it in this conference. So that's the gender shades work. And then she did a whole bunch of stuff around it, right? Like she created visualizations. She has um, spoken word. She performed. She has art, like exhibitions. Yeah. She has policy proposals. I mean, like, you know, congressional testimonies and all that, right? 
Um, and then her and Deb had a follow-up work called Actual Auditing, where they were attacked by Amazon VPs and stuff. And my colleague and Meg Mitchell and I had to come to our, their defense. We spent like a whole month preparing a rebuttal, an open letter that was signed by like um, a lot of academics, including Turing Award mm. winners. Was it was this around the kind of Amazon's recognition, facial recognition software? Yeah. So VP after VP was attacking them, trying to exactly the same pattern as what happened with me now, trying to say that their work was subpar, trying to attack the integrity, the technical quality of the work. That's exactly what they did. And nobody really, their institutions did not come to their defense. So me and Meg spent a whole month like um, writing a whole rebuttal letter mm. and getting people to sign it and all that. And then that was like a very clear rebuttal of what the VPs were saying, right? So it's kind of like the same playbook, right? Like this, a black woman writes something that is relevant to their her community. A white VP comes in and says like, it's not, it's subpar work or whatever. And then the community has to come to your defense, right? And so this is sort of what happened to me at Google most recently. Right. So can we talk about what happened at Google? So you you were there, you showed up in 2018, you start doing all kinds of different research. And then you started working on this paper, I think, toward the end of last year on these large language models. Is that right? Yeah. So in in September is when we collaborated with Emily Bender, Emily M. Bender, who is yeah. a very well-known professor at University of Washington and in fact her paper won best theme paper award like so she wrote an, a paper called climbing towards natural language understanding and so that won best theme paper award so and she's a linguist um who understands the sociocultural implications of language the power dynamics a lot of different things that these other people really don't think about so yeah, we wanted to collaborate with her. And the funny thing is that I I wrote her a Twitter message being like, hey, a lot of people at Google keep on asking me about ethical considerations of large language models. And I keep on pointing them to you and your resources. Like, have you written a paper about this? And if so, are you interested in writing a paper about it? Because you should write a paper and then I could point people to that paper. And she was like, no, I haven't written one, but we should write one together. And that's kind of how this collaboration started. And now I'm fired, the whole paper, you know what I mean? Like, I know, this was not how it was supposed to go. It was just supposed to be a paper, just supposed to be a paper out there to even point people at Google. I was even, like, telling people at Google, oh, yeah, like, yeah, we do have this paper. I'll send it to you, and I'll send it to you for review, you know, yeah. for feedback after we have a round of feedback from other people, et cetera. That's how we were doing this. Then the rest is history, right? So, so what, so... Briefly, what is a large language model and what did you set out to study about that in this paper? Well, we, we're, we're talking about a specific type of large language model. We're, 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 we were mostly targeting neural models. And we, we talk in our paper about why we were targeting this latest crop of large language models and not like prior ones like engrams or models or something. Right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So this is like the OpenAI's GPT-3, which sometimes can generate like poetry and actual human-like responses. Coherent like, sounding is machine or is Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, when it's used in a generative way, but these models can be embedded in various other natural language processing paths. So machine translation is one, for instance. And so we were noticing a trend where there was a lot of hype around these models um, and but and not enough kind of caution and not enough talk about their drawbacks. And if there was talk about their drawbacks, it wasn't a, it was like a footnote. It was like, oh yeah, these things are great. But then also here is this like Islamophobic stuff that it generates. But anyways, you know whatever. Sure, that's the world. That's how yeah. it is. Kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? And so I saw a lot of excitement and like at Google they were just like, oh yeah, we should be leading in large language models and stuff. And so it seemed like this um, this race for larger and larger models by everybody. So. OpenAI would come up with something, then Microsoft wants to do something, and then at Facebook and Google, and they were, that was all they were talking about. And it reminded me of this very macho, uh, like, let's get bigger kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we wanted to bring a little bit of a different view to kind of have the brakes a little bit and just get people to think about our perspective of how we think people should think about the potential risks and harms of these models. And even when people talked about risks and harms, it was still a lot of white men kind of honestly having these discussions. So it was very important to me to have very different perspectives represented. So in our list of authors, so three authors, well, four authors were told to redact their names, right? And so that was Mark Diaz, Vinod Prabhakan, Ben Hutchinson, and Meg Mitchell, obviously, and all of their perspectives were very important in shaping the paper. So first of all, we have people from literally all corners of the world, like in terms of background, where they were born, right, and raised. Secondly, we had um, many different gender, sexualities, races in the paper. And we have people from very different academic disciplines, who have studied things in, in different academic disciplines. And so that was the point of view that we wanted to put across. But in our discussions, we wanted to make sure that some people got something out of it, even the people who'd get defensive about what we have to say. So we were we were very diligent about giving sending the paper for review among many different people. So we, we classified the people we wanted to have reviews for in four buckets. One was the people who develop 
large language models themselves, like the people who are involved mm-hmm. in creating Bird, GPT-3, etc. Well, like, I think we should give them a heads up before they write, they like, you know, see this paper online and we want to see how they, how they feel about it and incorporate whatever feedback we can. Two, the people who would get defensive about whatever we, we, we say. Three, the people who study the, you know, harms and risks and stuff of, of large, large language models, like people who've done these kinds of work before, people yeah. who cite, etc. And then four, I think, is like people who would agree with us, but like have other things to say, stuff like that. So we sent the paper to like 30 something people and we had all of their feedback in a large, huge document, like 30 page document, whatever. Yeah. And we, we like looked at, you know, we classified their different feedback. We looked at what we should add, which section and how we should answer if we don't agree with someone's feedback, like how do we address that in the paper? It's kind of like a rebuttal to their feedback, right? Or adding yeah. a point or whatever. So we did all of that, you know, <laughs> and then we're like these random people, we don't know who they are just like write a confidential document and order us last minute to like retract the paper and we can't even have a conversation about it right so random people within google yeah i don't i don't know i'm not yeah. supposed to know who it came from i'm not so first of all it's interesting megan Catrolia, who's not a researcher whose expertise is not large language models who does it i mean you had to even explain how the research process how like the review process works how the yeah. timelines works how conferences work had a, a meeting uh, like just put out a, a a meeting on my calendar on Meg's birthday. Meg couldn't make it because she was taking a day off. Two weeks, a, a day before everybody was out for a vacation. We were, I was going to be out for on a two week vacation. So they fired me in the middle of my vacation. Right. And during that meeting, she says, oh, some of the product leads think that, you know, the paper shouldn't be published and stuff. And I'm like, A, why? That's not how you say that. You should have a discussion. B, why now? Like we we started this discussion about this paper in September. Why are you doing this like yeah. in la- late November? Also, you can revise like the the camera ready deadline is end of December or is it end of January? I forgot. But like you know, it was um we still have months, so you can have a discussion. Why would you just tell us to retract? So then she said that. Later on in my email exchanges, she's like, oh, it came from me and Jeff and other people. I'm like, well, you didn't tell me that when we were in our meeting. Jeff is Je- Jeff is Jeff, Jeff Dean. Dean. The, the Jeff of- Dean, like I sent an email, email and he was like, well, I quickly skimmed the paper and I read section three and I have issues with section three. I'm like, okay, well, how do you want section three to be changed? You can't just quickly skim mm-hmm. the paper and tell me to retract my work that I spent months and like quickly yeah. skim the paper. And so it didn't seem like it came from him either. But the other people sort of like just, it was just like a confidential one page document to HR that I'm not even supposed to look at, you know, how I'm supposed to find out about it. My manager was allowed to read it to me. And I was taking notes. I was not having discussed right. research. It's so crazy. So that's what happened. It was so. I have two questions. One, I mean, is it fair to say that these these type of large language models are pretty core to what Google's kind of you know the kind of the cash cow the search business is? And two, is there something? What did you guys find? In other words, was it something that was so damaging to them where you can kind of understand where they're coming from like here's these researchers over here with which we're paying to do kind of you know just independent research as long as it doesn't you know make us look bad or was it like this is what we have found 
this looks bad for Google. This raises some questions about how you do business and your plans going forward or something like that. Therefore, we're going to try to suppress it. I think that a bunch of guys saw this paper and first of all, they don't respect, you know, certain kinds of scholarship. So we had Mark Diaz was is a social scientist. This was his first paper with our team. So that's one, like they just didn't respect us as researchers. Like we're not talking about a specific Google product. We're talking about a specific technology that's used by everybody. And we're asking people to consider trade-offs. So we're not saying just stop everything with respect to large language models. And all of the things we wrote were based on an analysis of prior work. And, you know, there are certain analysis that you might have not seen before, but it wasn't like there was a thing that was completely unknown before that now, you know, we're putting to the forefront. Maybe we're putting certain kinds of analyses that were buried before to the forefront. Because they don't respect us as researchers in our point of view, they thought maybe that we were painting a grimmer picture than we should. What about the benefits? They were like, you don't talk about the benefits. I'm like, I wrote at some point, I was like, our paper is called on the dangers of large language models. Someone else can write on the benefits of large language models. Also, every single paper you write from Google is about the benefits of large language models. You don't scrutinize them and say, hey, your benefits that you're writing about are not very well grounded. Right. You're scrutinizing us. And I said, do you want us to add a section on benefits? We could do that if that's what you want. Like, tell me. Nope. That That's the other problem. It's like they weren't, it's the disrespect that they weren't even, they didn't think it was worth it to even engage in a conversation, right? It wasn't just like, we think this is harmful, stop, and let's have a conversation about it so you understand. It was just like, that's it. Like, just let us know when you've retracted. No no further conversations. Right. And just for, for the broader audience of people thinking about like, you know, AI and why we should care, why this matters. Can you talk a little bit about just like, because it feels to me like, you know, everybody talks about AI out here. I mean, AI itself is a very broad term, but this idea that it's the kind of the new electricity, it's everywhere. It's kind of inculcating itself in all different aspects of modern life. And so the thinking would be, we should be pretty thoughtful about how this is developed. Because it does feel like once these algorithms are developed, they're developed based on data that is put together by humans who may have their biases, et cetera. And then they're kind of off and it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Is that kind of part of your thinking around the way you approach this and why this is important to you? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of AI ethics or bias, whatever stuff right now, the way they want to do it is what Meg calls fig leaf. They get excited about something. They want to put all their weight behind it. And then at some point, their arms might be twisted to think about something. They certainly don't want to prioritize certain points of view in the beginning. And even if they think that they are prioritizing the risks and harms, it's from their point of view. Right. It's from the point of view of the people who told us, who ordered us to retract the pap- our paper. It's not from the point of view of like people in marginalized groups who are the recipients of of these negative impacts. And so even if they want to think about the risks, they minimize the effect of the risks because because they're not the ones facing them. So like even for instance, 
toxicity in social media is a similar thing, misinformation or whatever. Yeah. A person who is a target of misinformation, who is a target of coups and a whole bunch of stuff that is amplified by these social networks would have a very different point of view about the dangers than like a person who's not affected. And a lot of these people who are at the top, who are, even if they are well-intentioned, quote unquote, are not affected and they just don't think it's that big of a deal and they're you're making it sound like too much of a, de- a big deal so one of the things i remember the document said it was like a painted a grim picture or something like that our paper yeah. <laughs> you know the reuters article talked about how people were told to strike a, a positive tone it's like the scientific um version of like you should smile more you know what i'm saying is that in the reuters article just so for people don't know that i think this was an article that came out some days ago, maybe last week. There's two articles. The first one came out a while ago, and it talked about this review process called the sensitive review process where scientists were told to change their tone. The second one discussed even worse, worse, worse things where the lawyers were specifically editing papers for tone. And like that was like even worse than the first article. Right. What do you see, and this is probably an obvious question, but what is the danger in this process, in the way, you know, this research, because presumably they have you guys in there to help guide the development of products, as you were saying at the beginning. What's the danger of this kind of being a perhaps less than good faith effort? The danger is that there's two things. The first one is that they would fool people into thinking that there is a good faith AI ethics, whatever effort. So it disarms people into, and they don't, they're not as vigilant and they don't try to monitor and audit what tech companies are doing. And that is then accompanied by even more harmful technology that's not being developed with trying to minimize negative consequences as much as possible from day one. So those two combinations are are bad because either you do one and then the public knows and so they, you know, people galvanize or you do the other, which is, you know, sure, you're at least having a good faith effort. I know that you're a corporation, so you're limited in exactly how much you will be incentivized to do. But those two combinations of what's happening right now are extremely dangerous. Right. So what are you going to do now? <laughs> well, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Yeah. And so it's like I just wake up exhausted every day. And so I am currently trying to focus whatever time I'm spending on anything, <laughs> which is not much, on what, what I have to do for Black and AI. And um, just kind of, you know, there's also various projects I was working on with various students that I, I can't just abandon them. And so I'm just trying to do that kind of stuff as well. And I really want to take like a one month long vacation at the beach somewhere. Hopefully if I get vaccinated at some point, like once the pandemic is yeah, yeah, yeah. over and just kind of, the, I think after that, I'll feel a little bit like, okay, I've moved on now. I'm, I'm taking a break, but currently I'm just still dealing with the ramifications of what's going on. I'm very worried about my team. I'm trying to figure out like, what is the safest option for them? What you know, it's just it's it's just really horrible what they did to them, right? It's, it's not just about me. It's I'm just one of the the victims of this whole situation. Yeah, because May, Meg Mitchell, your co-director, was just fired as well. Meg was fired, and again, it's not just about me and Meg. Like one of the things reasons I was extremely adamant about having a conversation about this paper was because it had ramifications for our team. I did not refuse to retract my name off of the paper. 
I said, I am happy to do it if we have a conversation about X, Y, and Z. And they said, no. And that's very dangerous because I knew that, you know, what does this mean for our team? And what does this mean for the, for the new people we just hired? One of them was in the middle of orientation when they fired me like that, his manager. So he lost two of his managers. I was his manager, then Meg was his manager. And they'd fired Meg in the middle of their performance review season. Right now it's performance review season at Google. They fired Meg, they reorged them and all that. And this is this is when they're supposed to be evaluated about like what they did the last you know cycle and stuff. It's just so inhumane. So that's what I'm thinking about right now. And as far as you understand, what is what is Google Research now? You said they reorganized it. So is it, like, have they changed the way it's set up now? And what does that look like? I, I don't even, that doesn't fix anything what they did. So first of all, they moved my team out of the only person who was supportive of them, Sammy. Sammy's a director, the only director who was actually trying to protect our team. Our team, the only thing they asked for was to make sure that they're still under him. Nope. Moved him out. Moved them out. They've been harassed. You know, like we've all been harassed. Like we've been stalked, harassed, etc. And so our team and our collaborators and anybody who supported us on Twitter was harassed as well. I've been following you on Twitter and it's um, the the vitriol is intense. But like I'm saying there are people who spend 24-7, literally 24-7. So it's not just comments on Twitter or whatever. 24-7 harassing people and stalking them and finding information about them and emailing their spouses threats and stuff that's what's happening in our team it's not just like you know just stuff why why (laughs) why do you have any sense of why like what i mean because i've i've seen i've seen the paper you guys put out and like it's racism and sexism so even these people when you look at how they harass people if there are like white guys or even guys who engage with them and like t- tell them off, they don't stalk them and harass them like they were doing us. So at the root of it is definitely racism and sexism and miso- misogyny, misogyny, or whatever. This paper, even for my firing, this paper was just a pretext, in my opinion. It wasn't really the reason they mm-hmm. fired me. I think at this point, after reading the paper and stuff, a lot of people have come to that conclusion. The root of it is like racism and sexism. But as you say, they, it was very clear who you were and what you believed before you showed up. Yeah, they probably thought I would make them look good. And then when I was actually, and I did actually make them look good. But when I was actually pushing for just the most basic accountable, the most basic forms of change, the most basic forms of a safe environment, they were tone policing me a lot of times. There was a lot of like, you know, I was, there's just so much stuff happening. And I wasn't, I was speaking up about what I was experiencing and it was very clear they weren't happy about that. I knew that. Mm. And so would you ever go back to this kind of pseudo-academic role within a corporation? Because it does feel like there's an unavoidable tension there between kind of independent researchers employed by a corporation and then a corporation which has shareholders and financial interests and you know a bottom line. I don't think the answer is to just move all research out of corporations because in academia too, like a lot of people talk about academic freedom, but academia is second only to the military in terms of harassment and abuse. So that that freedom is mm-hmm. afforded to like people at the top who are controlling people with this indentured servitude type of um, relationship. <laughs> so uh, I, I can't like, it's not like academia is better. 
So I think that there needs to be protections for people to doing this kind of work, and there needs to be certain parameters. There needs to be sort of whistleblower protection and other types of protection. Anti-discrimination laws need to be strengthened. Things like that need to happen. And so I don't think the answer is to just move all you know research out of corporations. But at the same time, there needs to be a lot of support for independent research that is not, of course, that's not like based on the interests of corporations. So right now there is a lot of like, DARPA funding or, you know, corporation funding. And I think we need to have like another entity and that a significant amount of funds need to be invested in this type of um, research fund. Do you have any sense that that might be coming from someone or something? I hope so. I mean, that's one of the things I'm advocating for. So I really hope that that that's that starts to happen. Right. Well, I understand that this paper is going to be Professor Bender is um, presenting the paper this week, right? Or... Yeah, a fact. Yeah. I wish you guys luck with all of that. And um, yeah, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And um, good luck fighting the fight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Tim Neat for taking the time to tell her story. It's obviously not an easy thing to recount. So I am really appreciative of that and also uh, of all you all for listening. So I think it's a really important story that's going to continue to run and have reverberations. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good thing to just bear in mind. And I'm actually off. I'm on vacation this week. So I'm not writing anything in the paper this weekend, but you can find me back next week at The Times. Um, or you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson, um, or email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it for me this week. Stay safe, stay sane, and have a fabulous weekend. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.